it's really, I think, the role for the small lawyer, for a small business person, is a general advisor. I mean, it's the same work I do for small companies. They'll come and they need to buy a new machine and they want somebody to look at the purchase order. Well, you can't just call these big law firms unless you have an established relationship uh, and say, gee, I need somebody to look at this agreement. One, it's going to get filtered through three or four people with conflicts checks, and maybe two weeks later you'll get a green light. It'll be sent to some associate for review who will give you an answer that's, you know, also involves the Magna Carta and a $10,000 bill. And if you call me up and I look at the purchase agreement and I like the warranty terms and I like this and the price is okay for you and I don't tell you how to re-engineer the deal, you're into me for a couple of hours and you've got some good advice on this $130,000 expenditure you're about to make. This is Swarfcast. I'm Lloyd Graff, and today we're talking about lawyering with the best lawyer I know, Russell Etheridge of Detroit, Michigan. He has a one-person office, and he's a part-time judge, too. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graff Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graff Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. Welcome to the podcast of Today's Machining World. I've been looking forward to this. Well, Lloyd, thanks for for inviting me. Okay, Russ, a little bit about your personal history. How in the world did you end up as a uh, lawyer in Detroit? I know you have a history uh, in writing, your family has been in uh, the newspaper business. Give me a brief personal history. Well, it's kind of a checkered one, uh, uh, so I will keep it brief in the interests of maintaining my dignity. Um, <laughs> I was born on uh, Long Island, New York, when my dad was a journalist there, uh, migrated to Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, where uh, he was the editor of uh, what was then the Raleigh Times, and um, was run out of town uh, uh, because of his positions on integration in the South in the early 50s or mid-50s, which was, uh, at that time, I guess if you were living in Raleigh, his views would be considered at that time politically correct. And, of course, we're 180 degrees from there now. Uh, Moved to rural West Virginia uh, on a flyer uh, and... uh, with uh, him as a family as a kid. He was bought a little paper in a town called Ravenswood on the banks of the Ohio River. 
and um, and then ultimately uh, moved to Detroit to be the associate editor of the Free Press uh, in its heyday when print was, uh, you know, wildly popular. There were two strong papers in many communities around the country, a morning and an afternoon paper every day, and ultimately uh, became the editor of the Free Press uh, during a very interesting time in America. It was the Vietnam War, and uh, he was... Uh, very anti-war, uh, and I think that that was somewhat of a bold position, at least initially. Uh, and uh, I went to school in Gross Point, uh, Michigan, which is just, as you probably know, a very nice, you know, what I'd call kind of a lake forest suburb, uh, if you wanted to liken it to someplace in Chicago. Uh, my parents, uh, thinking that I would be better off uh, with a different peer group, um, uh, sent me to boarding school, but I, I shouldn't feel singled out. All of us kids went to some private school. And then University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'd like to think that I got uh, a lot out of Chapel Hill, but looking back, I probably wasted at least a couple of years. But maybe that's part of college. And then off to my first job, which was in Ravenswood, back in the town, uh, you know, I was uh, in elementary, or actually in kindergarten, and where I became a reporter for uh, the weekly paper. And it was an interesting uh, process living in a small town in West Virginia uh, by yourself in a community uh, that perhaps wasn't completely comfortable with Yankees, uh, even though it's not really Southern, it's not Northern either. So <laughs> that's kind of one of the interesting things about West Virginia. And uh, after working at the newspaper for a while, and then uh, I decided to apply to law school, uh, I ended up working for a year while I applied to law school, writing ERISA plan summaries for the General Tire and Rubber Company, or as the employees called it, the Generous Tire and Rubber Company. Uh, and uh, then law school at West Virginia University in Morgantown. And then I clerked for uh, Justice of the West Virginia Supreme Court, Daryl V. McGraw, who was quite a character. In fact, my first day on the job, uh, he went on trial for assaulting and battering a uh, sheriff's deputy who refused to let him inspect a jail where a, a kid had hung himself. Uh, he was a notorious uh, liberal and uh, had a very, oh, kind of jaundiced view of what he called limousine liberals. He said it's real convenient to be liberal when you have a lot of money. Uh, so I think it was an interesting um, time for me to learn a lot about West Virginia, a lot about politics. He was, in fact, uh, in a great movie, he and his brother called If Elected. I think it was a PBS piece about campaigning in rural West Virginia. And as he used to tell me, you could get a vote down there for two swallows and two dollars. Uh, so I had a real uh, baptism into politics, uh, into law at the highest level uh, in a state where, as you may have read recently, uh, the legislature impeached the entire West Virginia Supreme Court bench. Uh, and uh, we'll see where that goes. Um, and then you went back to Detroit? And then, and then you know, I don't know why, uh, but I was comfortable in Detroit. I still had a lot of my friends. Uh, I knew I didn't want to stay in West Virginia, as my father said about West Virginia. And it's not really totally f fair. My grandfather practiced law in West Virginia, so I had other roots there. It wasn't just like it was nowhere. He was a lawyer there for 60 years. Uh, I was named after him. And I remember as a kid in the summers when I was little, I'd go down there for a month or two at a time, and I'd go to work with him every Saturday morning. 
following which we went to Lupo's for chili dogs. And, uh, you know, I watched my, uh, and I asked him, I said, why do you work on Saturdays? He goes, well, he said, most of the people I represent are working during the week. And the only time they can get in to see me is on the weekends. Uh, and these were farmers or, you know, mine owners, all kinds of different people, uh, very eclectic practice, uh, kind of like what I do now. Uh, his name was on the door and, uh, he was a, a pretty prominent Northern West Virginia lawyer and a fine trial lawyer. Uh, and I think that's where I got a lot of my interest in the law. Interesting. Uh, so you followed his model, really? Well, you know, it, yeah, yes, I did. And I'll tell you, the, the thing that I followed, and when I really reflect what I learned from him, it, it actually didn't come until his funeral. At that point, I was in my second year of law school. He knew I was going to make it. I mean, I was going to be the lead article uh, editor for the Law Review. I was, you know, pretty much getting close to the top of the class, certainly wasn't right there at the top, but certainly in the top 20% or so, and had good grades, and so he was successful, and he, you know, he died, and I went to his funeral, and there were all these people from what I guess you'd call, you know, at that time, the black side of town, who came to the funeral, and I'm kind of looking around, and, uh, you know, all these people came up to me, and they said, you know, you can't believe what your grandfather did for me. And then I would hear a story about, you know, some, you know, horrible uh, interaction with the government or law enforcement or God knows what, uh, and about how he dedicated his time at no fee to extricating him from something. And it impressed upon me a certain social responsibility that comes with being a lawyer that isn't just about uh, advocacy for those who can pay the bill uh, and uh, and uh, advocacy for those whose positions are popular. And I think that that's something that lawyers have always been told, but to really see the example and to have never heard him speak of it uh, was interesting to me. Uh, there was a certain humility that uh, I wish I had. Uh, he was very humble about it, uh, didn't speak about it, but I found out about it you know, after his death that he was a real community servant. Uh, so that was kind of an interesting thing. And he had this eclectic practice. And I just remember how walking through town, and this is a little bit true for me too, uh, everybody knew him. Uh, you know, just everybody from every walk of life knew this guy. Uh, he just, it was a small town called Fairmont, West Virginia. It was a mining town. Today you cater to small businesses, you cater to individuals. You have uh, a period where you're on the bench. Uh, have you had any regrets about not working for a big law firm? Uh, no. And tell me why. The first thing is, I mean, do you have regrets? No. Do you wonder about what it would have been like? Sure, but it's not a regret of wondering. It's wondering, well, uh, you know, my across-the-street neighbor is the chairman of Michigan's largest law firm. Uh, probably makes three times what I make. Um, as we call him, he's a professional leader. He takes clients out to lunch and dinner all the time all over the world. Uh, he's gained about 30 pounds, but he never, you know, he, you don't see him at any school functions when his kids were little. I mean, he's a great guy, uh, good husband and this and that, but I mean, he's on the road a lot. And managing, you know, four or 500 attorneys is probably a difficult job. 
So you kind of wonder, well, gee, that's prestigious. You're really part of an elite group and this and that. But the problem is, is that it's just what I described. He's a professional leader. Uh, he's trying to herd 300 or 400 cats, isn't home very much. And I'm not sure that all the money in the world uh, uh, would really compensate for the loss of the kind of, you know, hands-on tactile uh, practice of law that I think I get in this small practice. I mean, does it have its challenges? Sure it does. I mean, there's nobody to look to. There's no associates writing my briefs, uh, you know, while I go play golf. So, uh, no. Do you think that uh, the, this individual entrepreneur, lawyer, is a style that will disappear or is it coming back? Oh, boy, Lloyd, that's the $64,000 question or maybe even bigger now. Um, I think there's always going to be room for the lawyer who does estate and probate and does drunk driving, criminal defense work. Uh, those people are always going to be, by and large, uh, solo or small firm practitioners. One, I don't think that the big firm, one, the big firms have a lot of overhead that's baked into the fee. So somebody who is a blue collar worker who's now got his second drunk driving can't afford to hire, you know, uh, schmuckum and schmuckum at 450 bucks an hour. He needs somebody who's willing for a thousand or 1500 bucks or $2,000 to take his criminal case and, uh, and live and die. And I think that that practitioner is really only viable in a small firm or solo setting. So I do think that there will be room for that solo practitioner. At the same time, I also think that we're going to see increasing, uh, because we simply have to, increasing specialty or at least limited practices. There's a lot of change going on in the law right now. For example, some states, including Michigan has recently done this, have given attorneys the right to ghostwrite pleadings for people who are representing themselves. They're called limited engagement agreements. And you can draft that person's complaint, but you're not going to be their lawyer and you're not going to go to court. So somebody has been wronged. They don't know how to uh, address it. They don't know what is the legal theory. Did I get screwed out of a contract or was I, a, you know, what's the legal basket into which my problem falls. Well, you can go to a lawyer and get that and then go to court and explain it to the judge. That's an economical way uh, uh, for uh, people to participate in the legal system with at least some, you know, heads up going in. And I think accessibility to legal services is going to be increasingly important. Uh, it's difficult uh, to do that on a large firm uh, basis. So small practitioners, I think, will continue to play a role. It will have to be more limited. Uh, you're, you don't see small practitioners taking these, you know, uh, $100 million uh, products cases because, they, you know, they don't have the money to, to put into them. Uh, litigation today... Uh, just your average malpractice case, medical malpractice case, or products liability case, uh, typically have tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in upfront costs in the form of experts and uh, research and just all kinds of stuff, travel. Uh, that is a, um, a limiting factor in some small firms. But, I mean, the really big class actions, you know, Sue and Johnson and Johnson for hip mesh problems nationwide, that requires a pretty big outfit. Uh, but so much legal work now that at the corporate level, like Henry Ford uh, probably hired his buddy down the street to help him buy the real estate in which the Ford 
first Ford plant was built in Dearborn. But I bet today, in fact, I know today that Ford Motor Company hires, you know, big New York law firms uh, and uh, big Michigan law firms or big law firms wherever they're located because they can just amass such horsepower. And, you know, who cares about a $100,000 legal bill for some transaction that a small lawyer might do for a quarter of that? Okay, so what does a small business person do if they need a lawyer? Don't you think a big firm is... uh a forbidding prospect for them if they have a regulatory issue or if they have uh, a pollution issue, if they have whatever. Here's what here's the advantage that a big, big firm brings. The problem is getting to that uh, is that they bring a wealth of talent, uh, everything from environmental to regulatory to litigation to business to banking. Uh, all of those things are assets that the traditional, you know, large firm, and I'm not talking, I'm talking large firms, you know, 75, 100, 300, 1,000. Those firms have deep resources. The problem is, is how do you identify, if you're the small business guy, who's, uh, what part of your ox is getting gored? And where a small lawyer comes in uh, is, I have a general broad knowledge of a variety of fields of law. In many respects, you would say I'm the classic jack-of-all-trades and master of none, although I I do have some niches that I know better than others. So when you're a small business person, you come into me and you describe whatever it is that's happening to you, odds are that I have a pretty good uh, uh, field of vision, a pretty broad field of vision. And if we get into something very narrow, I mean, I have an issue right now where one of my clients is uh, facing a ballot proposal. It's a complicated matter, but it's an issue of election law. Now, I know those general issues and I knew what basket was in, but ultimately I came in, I ferreted through the issue, identified what the salient uh, problems were, and then referred him to a specialist over which uh, I exercise some monitoring and control just to make sure the thing doesn't go uh, you know, wild. So it's really, I think, the role for the uh, small lawyer, for a small business person, is a, as a general advisor. I mean, it's the same work I do for, you know, these uh, small companies. They'll come and they need to buy a new machine and they want somebody to look at the purchase order. Well, you can't just call these big law firms unless you have an established relationship uh, and say, gee, I need somebody to look at this agreement. One, it's going to get filtered through three or four people with conflicts checks, and maybe two weeks later you'll get a green light. It'll be sent to some associate for review who will give you an answer that's you know also involves the Magna Carta and a $10,000 bill. And if you call me up and I look at the purchase agreement and I like the warranty terms and I like this and the price is okay for you and I don't tell you how to re-engineer the deal, you're into me for a couple of hours and you've got some good advice on this $130,000 uh, expenditure you're about to make. And I think... Then you call me because there's a regulatory issue, and maybe that's not my wheelhouse, but I know where to send it. How do you how do you figure out your value to a client? Is it strictly based on time, or is it the the value of the advice that you give? Well, Lloyd, you've hit the third rail of the practice of law right now. Um, uh, you know, unfortunately, we have, this never used to be the case. Lawyers never used to really bill by the hour. 
a lawyer would look at it and a apply some value to it. My grandfather would laugh. He said, oh, I'd look at the thickness of the file and make a good guess. But, <laughs> because he didn't keep his life, he didn't justify his existence in six minute increments or 15 minute increments. Uh, and part of that is, you know, think about the inefficiency or incentive for the lawyer to just, well, I'll research this extra area. Why? Because I can bill another 30 minutes for it. When you know, uh, you know, you're pretty confident that you've got the handle uh, you need to resolve the problem. Um, so I like to think, and I adjust my bills all the time. I mean, I can tell you, I most of the time I end up cutting my bill because I've gotten into some interesting twist in a case that probably doesn't add value to the client. It might add value to my understanding. I, and in that way, I think it adds value to the client, but I don't feel like it's fair for me to send him a bill. So I lop it off uh, and look at it. I keep track by the hour, and that's generally, um, you know, because that's the custom and practice of it. But I like the concept of flat fee and billing by value and result. Uh, it's just something that we've gotten away from in the last, you know, really 30, 40 years. Uh, I've really never known any other way of practicing besides writing down billable hours. Uh, but I know in the past that billable hours were not seen as uh, the way to bill. It was a value-based billing. Um, and that's a difficult subjective question. Um, it seems like everybody's billing by the hour now. I mean, how do you know how much value you put in finding that perfect piece of equipment for one of your customers who's got a pressing need for, you know, this machine that does X, Y, and Z so he can get this contract. And how do you price that? Well, I think that uh, personally, building by the hour is the wrong approach. And I, one of the reasons why I've always respected you so much is that I felt that you solved problems and you ra rather than billing by the hour you attempted to just solve the problem and i think so often lawyers and other professionals uh get so wrapped up in this uh working by the hour thing that they forget that the end solution is what you're being paid for well, and that, you know, that reminds me of the story everybody's told is the guy who comes in to look at a complicated piece of machine and you know it, he looks at it, eyes balls it for a little bit and puts a little mark up here and says, here's your problem and gives the guy a bill for 10,000 bucks. Guy says, what the hell? $10,000? Itemize that bill. And the guy goes, you know, $1 for chalk mark, $9,099.99 for knowing where to put it. <laughs> So now, Russ, you are a judge, too. How did that come about? Well, that was a crazy thing. Uh, you know, I, um, it's something that I've always been interested in doing, and it just, it, but it never occurred to me. I, don't, I live in a community uh, where all the judges have uh, historically electable last names, uh, <laughs> none of which are ethnic. And, uh, you know, if you're, uh, and I say this because I like them all, but if you're a Gillis or a Hathaway or, you know, anybody else like that, you've got a pretty good na uh, name to run on. Well, I don't have any. And uh, I live in the, you know, the smallest judicial district in the state. And uh, an old mayor, uh, former retired mayor of our community and I were talking, he said, you know, you ought to 
think about putting your name in for judge. The old judge is getting uh, to the age he's going to retire. So I, uh, I ended up having a beauty contest with the city council who was appointing him because he was leaving before the was appointing somebody to replace him. He was leaving before the end of his term. And the, the only thing that impressed them, and this is an interesting thing, I said, you know, after I, I got the position and then I had to run for election a year later and was elected uh, without much problem. And uh, I asked them, I said, why did you select me? And they said, because you were the only person who had actually come to the court and watched it operate before coming to your, you know, candidate interview. <laughs> uh, I was kind of uh, uh, amazed that no one else who'd applied for the job, and there were five or six people from our community who wanted it, had actually gone to the court and watched how it worked and asked the clerks, you know, what went on there. So what kind of cases do you hear? You know, I hear um, uh, everything from, I mean, these are really, truly small dollar uh, cases such as landlord, tenant, or the guy who had a crummy driveway concrete job to um, uh, misdemeanors, drunk driving, domestic violence, and then the first tier of all felony cases that occur in our community. So, for example, if you have, I mean, we've only had one homicide case, but it starts uh, in my court. Uh, I'll get the real estate agent secretary who's embezzled $65,000 <laughs> over the last year or two, and her first court appearance is in my court where she's arraigned and then has what we call a preliminary examination, which is a hearing to determine if there's enough evidence for the case to go to a full trial. So I have a jurisdiction of, uh, of my criminal cases, misdemeanors up to a year, uh, preliminary stages of felonies, and then civil jurisdiction and essentially small and dollar may I ask disputes. You how much you're paid for this? Ah, I am paid the gargantuan sum of $15,000 per year with no benefits because it is a part-time uh, position. There are only four part-time judges in the state, and I'm one of them. Uh, and uh, it's a part-time position with only two formal court days a month, although you uh, don't want to tell that to my wife who answered the phone Saturday at about four in the morning for me to do a search warrant on a drunk driver <laughs> or on the or the Sundays that I show up, uh, you know, uh, throwing my uh, black robe over my uh, 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 blue jeans and a T-shirt to do an arraignment for the you know, guy they picked up shoplifting the night before. So... It's kind of a you're on all the time job, but there's only two formal court days a month, and I think my effective hourly rate's about five bucks. And what have you learned? What have I what have I learned is is that oh boy, Lloyd, that's a whole nother thing. I mean, I think I've learned that the justice system is imperfect, uh, uh, but I think actually the the single thing that I probably found is is that. Everyone who's involved in the justice system has an individual, whether it's a civil litigant, you know, you're fighting over this machine you bought that didn't work in your case, maybe, or you've been arrested for spousal abuse or you're the victim. Everyone has a story that's distinctive, even if the case is like the other five that were heard that morning is distinctive and it makes their their situation distinctive every criminal defendant no matter how abhorrent has got some story to tell that while it might not just might not justify their actions perhaps can explain them and at least make them understandable to a human being 
everyone has a story behind their mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the single thing. And and the other thing is I've learned and I'm 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 just taking baby steps is that you there is more value in listening uh, than in in talking. And um, uh, I don't a good user of that lesson. I'm I'm trying to be better. Is would you call listening perhaps the most important talent that a lawyer has? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, it's the first talent that the lawyer has to have. You don't know what problem you're being asked to solve. And what listening does uh, is it, and you have to question because clients, you know, don't always understand what's important. So that's why you ask questions. But you need to listen to the story to understand why the client's there in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing that you tell from listening is, you know, how sensitive is this client to whatever it is the circumstance is? If, you know, it seems like they're kind of laissez-faire or blasé about it, uh, you know, uh, maybe that's just not a big enough dollar issue for their business. Just handle it. We're not worried about it. I'm not going to lose any sleep. Other clients, that same amount or that same situation is going to keep them up at night. And the only real, really way to tell is to listen to the client, to, to, to look at them, to see what their reaction is, their tone of voice. You know, what is it that they're really afraid of? Um, because honestly, nobody really goes into the legal system unless, as I've said, they've been sued or they've been screwed. And, uh, um, you know, it's just you've got it. It's the way of taking the patient's vital signs is to listen. There's no substitute. Well, do you ever ask that question uh, when a client comes to you? What are you really afraid of? Yeah, every almost every time. Uh-huh. The question that I have is, let's talk about the worst. I mean, one of the after I get the initial story, the one question I I say is, what's the worst that can happen from this? And a lot of times, that's actually a very comforting question because yeah. it. It forces the client to put aside, you know, these boogeymen that aren't realistically going to happen and to put into perspective the fact that this is some wrinkle along the otherwise smooth fabric of their life uh, that we're going to get over and it's not going to tear the fabric. I would think Uh, that that moves you rather rapidly towards a conclusion in a lot of cases. Well, that this is one thing that is difficult about the legal business is that it takes two to tango. And so while your client can become resolved uh, or can become comfortable with resolving it or uh, not worrying about it, you've still got this other person for whom it may be intensely personal, uh, who hasn't figured out how to compartmentalize it or separate it, and for whom, you know, Hell hath no fury. So let's conclude by asking this question, and that is, when you're bombarded with people's pain in one form or another every day, whether you're on the bench or whether you're practicing, how do you develop the resilience? Because when I talk to you, you always seem to be in an up mood, with full of energy. How do you how do you develop that resilience? How do you maintain that buoyancy that I almost always feel? 
Well, Lloyd, I mean, some of it's, you know, the person making the call. There are plenty of clients who wear me out. You're not one of them, <laughs> uh, thankfully. And you always have interesting problems, and we have a lot of interesting things to talk about. You know, honestly, Lloyd, I can't say that I always do. I, I will say this. What, the difference of being on the bench versus being uh, in the um, advocacy side of this business is that when I'm on the bench, the only dog I have in the hunt is the integrity of the system uh, and respect for the process and making sure that everybody, everyone is treated fairly and that the process is administered fairly. I, re I don't really care how it comes out. The problem is when I'm an advocate for one side or the other, um, you know, honestly, Lloyd, I can't think of many nights in the last nearly 40 years of this business that I haven't awoken in the middle of the night and thought about the question that I didn't ask or the question that I did ask and wished I hadn't or what I was going to argue the next day or what I was going to tell this client about the bad ruling that came in. Uh, honestly, um, I'm upbeat because at the end of the day, I have to regularly remind myself that the problem that I'm handling is not my problem. Uh, it is some other person's problem. Uh, and that's a lot harder uh, uh, to, to separate than it might seem. Um, it, it is a business in which I am paid to take on the burdens of others. And if you care, they still become your burden. And uh, it's not as easy to divorce yourself from that burden as you might think. Thank you so much, Russ. Uh, Lloyd, uh, thank you for the opportunity. I can't imagine that anyone would care to listen to this rambling. Hey, everybody. First, we just want to say thank you to all of the people listening to this podcast. You guys are the hip folks, the early adopters. You make this thing worth doing. But it would be really great if you could subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, give us a rating. It'll just take a second, and it'll help other people discover it. Talk to you next week.